Today we're going to talk about Lestragonians, uh, the Lestragonians chapter of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. My name is Joe. I'm here with Josh. Tom. Dan. All right. Uh, yeah, very good. Enthusiastic. Um, so the, the ongoing debate I think we've been having is whether or not Lestragonians is kind of a stylistic step forward or a step back. So I think it was Josh that made the argument a couple... Uh, meetings ago that this was of the same vein as Lotus Eaters and Calypso and is not doing anything really stylistically different. I agree. And I think uh, stylistically it is a bit of a letdown overall. These are slight criticisms. It's still pretty genius. We have to take that for granted. But um, I think like thematically it's it's pretty impressive. You know what I mean? Uh, the motif being hunger and uh, you know, stuff of, of uh, ingesting and uh, vomiting up and all of this. I, I mean, I think it's, it's a marvel of that. And it's, you know, you know so great at, at just playing on that variation, uh, playing on the theme of variations and all of this. But what do we make of the idea that nothing's new happening after Aeolus, which I, I'll still maintain is pretty technically daring? I thought you had something on this. Well, let me jump in. I, yeah. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, if people aren't ready to receive your art, that would probably be a complicated place to be. And I kind of feel like this isn't so much a step back, but rather he's just giving people a taste for what's, con- what's going to come. Now, I don't know the rest of the book, but, you know, almost easing people and preparing them for what they're going to see later on. So you think, that, like, unless you're going to be a kind of stop, start, or, like... You know what I mean? Like, it's it's clear that the, the, the novel is not going kind of, you know, upward in terms of more and more technically complex. That there's yeah. stops and starts, yeah. right? All I'm suggesting is that this is a half step backwards from where we were going. And it's going to pick up, I think, in the next couple. But, but why do that? You know what I mean? There seems to be something, um, I don't know, stunted about... How this reads? Can I just still register my disagreement that Eolus? <laughs> That's what is, I was expecting. Because I, I still feel like, uh, you know, but for the <laughs> but for the headlines, Eolus is very much cut from the same cloth as. Hades, Lotus Eaters, Calypso, so that I... But the headlines exist. The headlines that, exist. I mean, that's sure. huge. Sure, sure. But well, okay, about, huge. I, I don't know. I I, st- I still feel like you know if you're t- if you're looking for stylistic innovation. You know, putting those headlines in is is definitely interesting, and I think it's it, it, you know essential. I mean, I know that the episode existed without them first, and I, I I think it's lesser without them, obviously. But I really don't think we're. Like I keep saying I don't think that you know. First of all, I don't know that we need to look for like oh, why isn't each chapter progressing in a stylistic way? That's not something that is necessary. But I, I think it's interesting. It's certainly interesting, but. If we are going to go with that idea, I really don't think it's it's until Sirens. Because once you get to Sirens, then you have Sirens, then you have... You know, uh, see, that? I feel like you're walking back your your ideas here. I thought you were with me on, uh, on even Hades, and Hades being a kind of step, stylistic, uh, daring step from Lotus Eaters, Aeolus being a further step, 
And this no, one, I don't think I was no. ever. I think I, I think they read very seamlessly. I think they really, other than the fact that we get different perspectives outside of Bloom's, we definitely get that very much yeah. you know, for moments in Lestragonians and Aeolus. But no, I think uh, I think stylistically, they, they feel like chapters cut from the same cloth of the same novel. <coughs> and you know, I think the first time that you really are jarred, other than just the, that visual effect of those headlines, I think the first time you're jarred is when you get that overture in Sirens. That's really the first time where you're like, you know, I really don't know what the hell is going on. And I just read, you know, two or three pages. Nah, you know what I, I mean? was already jarred. I've been jarred. Always, by, by the headlines. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. I don't know. I, I, I see it more as an interruption. Aeolus becoming a kind of chapter that interrupts the kind of, that's interesting. you know, narrative that's being developed. Joe, that's the, interesting. I'm yeah. with you, though, when you talk about thematically. I think there is a lot going on thematically that is... Um, all, these char- all these chapters are spot on. I mean, mm-hmm. with, with throwing a theme out there and just kind of playing with it and, and seeing how it works based on the, the kind of... Uh, body or emotional state of bloom I, I think it's you know masterful so is that a part of your criticism that this chapter doesn't throw any new themes out there no 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 I think the themes are handled well okay. I mean I think it's, it's as good as anything else you're just looking for I'm us. just it's confusing you know that that there's not a kind of uh, further progression you know in terms of just just innovation of textuality um I I, I was thinking actually I, you know uh one of the one of the kind of themes or mechanisms that Joyce laid out was that um, it was the idea of the esophagus and slowly having something move down the food move down the es- mm-hmm. what is it peristalsis peristalsis right and I thought maybe that the, that was could be equated to Lestragonians you know in terms of how the chapters move stylistically like you know per- say it again peristalsis peristalsis being this kind of like start and stop mechanism that maybe Lestragonians is a kind of stop. That's why when Dave said stop, that that I, there might be something to that. It's a little highfalutin. Mm. I don't know. If, you know. I don't know because uh, you know. So I just reread um, Skill and Charybdis, which comes right after this, yeah. and you know I was struck by the fact that it's very much like Proteus. Yeah. You know, it's 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 different than this because it feels more like Proteus because we are so much more in Stephen's world. I, I just, I mean, these these larger stylistic departures that you're looking for. Um, first of all, I don't know that again. That, that's something we should be looking for until we actually get them. Well, wait. I guess you're making the argument. I'm that we saying. Have. I'm seeing. That. I feel like you know that that if if the novel had ended with wandering rocks, yeah, right, chapter ten, <coughs> that this would have been very much like something like Portrait of the Artist, though a little more daring with the the interior monologue. But for those headlines in Eolus, which really were an afterthought, a masterful afterthought, but I really think they were, you know, you know afterthought they, seems a little. But they are a little. I mean, big. he published it in the the little review without the headlines. But maybe he didn't and want to give them away. What's that? Is it possible he didn't want to give away? No, I don't uh, think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Not. I really think it's 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 a visual trick that that is awesome. It's a great idea that came after the fact. Whereas something like, you know, Sirens was composed like a sonata. I don't know if that's the right word. You know what I mean? Whereas Aeolus was composed like Lotus Eaters, like Hades, like Lestragonians. And then when published later, the headlines were added in. Yeah. I mean, but... So that's my my, my, argument. So I don't think that it should be kind of a letdown when we get to Lestragonians. I I, I don't know that it's a letdown. I just think it's a curiosity. I mean, you'll take... You'll grant that once we hit Wandering Rocks, there is something new to stylistically like sink your teeth into with everyone. 
And Lestragonians, well, I guess you're saying not with Skill and Charybdis. I'm saying not. I think Skill and Charybdis is very much like Proteus. I think Wandering Rocks is like everything we've read thus far, except you're getting snippets of different people. I see, that's enough for me to say that that is uh, oh, kind of batshit crazy. But it's still, so it's still narrative. Read. You know what I mean? It's yeah, still, sure. it's still well, it's all narrative. Sure. Okay, so it's, it's narrative that we are all, you know, in 1922, getting comfortable reading, but not startled by after we've already read Proteus or something like that. For Tom and me, <clears throat> explain, like, so Sirens is what, chapter 15? No, of 18? Yeah, you, have, you have Skill and Charybdis next, then Wandering Rocks, then, yeah, then Sirens. So we so three chapters before this, like, you know, daring Sirens chapter, is that what you're... Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'm saying that he's wrong. I'm saying that... that Right, right. Definitely, wandering rocks does something strange. What are we look? What are Tom and I looking at in the next, you know, four, five, six chapters? I, th- I think the the text really speaking to the reader in different ways, not just changing themes, but but changing style so that it, it almost looks like a different novel in terms of your engagement. I mean, name another novel. I I'm having trouble even thinking one since I, this that is stylistically changing, looking at the page like a different thing, chapter to chapter. I've got something. Moby Dick. Oh, yeah, you're Mo- right. Moby you're Dick. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, by the way, when I was thinking about this idea of maybe Joyce trying to get his readers prepared for what's happening, Melville does that. Like He, he starts leaving that first-person point of view, but he does it very subtly. One time, Ishmael could be looking through a window and narrating a, a chapter, and then all of a sudden, Ishmael's gone, and he has no way of being somewhere. Next thing you know, you have a play, a, a, a musical of people singing on a bow, and it does start to get really kind of crazy, but he, he prepares you for that. And I, I'm just curious, you know, with Joyce, too, like, you know, if you're going to throw something at your, your readers that they're not ready for, I, I think you have to kind of prepare them to receive it. I think a good artist perhaps thinks that way. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, I'm and, buying that a little bit I, with I, Russia And yeah. I would say, see, I would say there's no preparation because yeah. I, I really feel like the, the first three chapters are very much Stephen. You know, you're in Stephen's world. Yeah. I would say every chapter up to Wandering Rocks, you are in Bloom's world until Eolus, right? Then we start getting more perspective, and that's a radical departure. We're starting to get different characters, and certainly we're not in their inner lives because the only inner lives we are in are either Stephen's, Bloom's, and at the very end, Molly's. But it's still like very much like this is a Bloom chapter. Mm-hmm. And Skill and Charybdis will be a Stephen chapter. And if you were to compare Skill and Charybdis, which we'll read next, to any of those first three chapters, you say, yes, I'm on familiar ground. This feels so much like Proteus, right? This is very much like Proteus. Lestragonians is very much like every Bloom chapter we've had thus far. Wandering Rocks is like there's a Bloom chapter there. There's a Stephen chapter there. But then there's also a Reverend Conmee chapter. And a Re- that's, that's, that's different. We're getting more characters and we're in their world, right? But it's still, stylistically, it is a departure. But I, it's not, like, nothing can prepare you for Sirens. Nothing can prepare you for Oxen of the Sun. Nothing or can Cyclops. prepare you for Cyclops. Or Penelope. No, yeah. that's, so that's all. the only point that I'm making is if you're looking for like where does the novel suddenly like some crack open, I think it's after Wandering Rocks. And if you think about it, if you're looking at the way Joyce was composing this, some people believe that Wandering Rocks could have been an end, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you, you're in bloom, you're with Steven, and then suddenly you branch out right into seeing Dublin as a whole. But of course, it doesn't end there after ten episodes. You know, it goes on. Yeah. All right. Thank goodness. Yeah, I don't know. I just see the text as 
blooming, you know, or a horrible bar, as, as opening up slowly along the trajectory. And I think this is a case that that's inconsistent. And I don't know. I'm just looking for a good reason why. Maybe there isn't one. Maybe uh, I'm wrong. Well, there's. I mean, there's a lot of things to look at with regards to a text kind of doing things that are different. You know, um, the narrative, for example, you start getting into different people's minds. That that starts changing the narrative experience. Yeah. You I know, mean, I mean, I haven't got I haven't gotten a Wandering Rocks yet, but, but if we saw it. Right, we saw it in Hades. Right, sure. but we're, we're only in Bloom's mind. We're not in the... What Dave is saying is, like, it would we... You know, the, the jarringness of getting into other characters... In oh, the and get into I, them I, I don't know that even... In, in Wandering yeah. Rocks, I don't think we do actually get into any minds. Mm. In fact, I don't... I really think you're outside. It's almost like if... You, to take a... You know, from cinema, it's like the camera pans out, yeah. and now we're actually watching them from this, like, omniscient point of view. Yeah. So... I read, I listened to the audio chapter for the first time, and it was awesome. Because, of Les Trigonians. Of Les Trigonians, yeah. because I actually followed, like, pretty much all the plot that was happening. I didn't feel like I missed it a whole lot. But what I was really amazed at is Joyce, you know, his narrative versus being in Bloom's head. That there are these moments, and of course this is the that production and how they kind of um, acted, but this idea that... You know, there's a narrative outside of the character's mind, and and they're interacting with each other. And of course, I imagine myself going back and reading this book again, and maybe seeing my own moments where the narrative is kind of splitting or, or fragmenting. That's pretty amazing. And you know, I'm trying to. I was trying to think what other writers are are doing that. You know, if you look at the Victorian novels that come, you know, 40, 50 years earlier, you're kind of pretty much in, in one kind of consciousness for most of the text whether it be a, a third-person narrative or a first, but this starts to do really complicated things, besides Melville. And no, you're right, and even when you're not, like, um, even when, when they're being played with it, there's a kind of logical yes. kind of control that the author, you know, uses, like Withering Heights, right? You know, there's, there's multiple kind of frames and things like that, but you always know exactly where you are. There's the like segue a is always very clear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or like Cawthorn with um, Wakefield when he's got that frame oh, narration. Yeah. I love or, Wakefield. Or, yeah, or Conrad with Heart of Darkness, that mm-hmm. frame narration. There's definitely departures, sure. and they're playing with, but this... This is like this is preparing me for Faulkner as they lay dying, or, See, I, I or Sound of Fury. More, much more complex than Faulkner. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's coming before him. It, it, what I mean to say is that you know, it, I mean, it could be more complex, but it's it's doing it before him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a cohesion to that's organized by chapter in Faulkner that Joyce really doesn't care about. Yeah, you know, um, he's messy. I wonder if Joyce read Melville. Do we know that? I mean, because Dave's well, we, right. We the talked about third this. of Moby Dick, you when know, we, actually yeah, has aspects of the counterparts, right? We saw Bartleby and had What do we decide? Do we decide anything? That he was probably familiar, I think, yeah. with him. Because from what, I mean, from what I understand, right, Melville doesn't really make a splash until, like, the modernists, like, probably 19, the teens or the 20s. They start reading him then because uh, he's pretty much forgotten. You, doesn't Pound bring... Uh, champion Melville is that right Maybe. I don't know because well, I know Pound is in in the circle with Joyce right uh, yeah you, sure I, I read that yeah. I thought in an introduction to uh, yeah. Exiles or something yeah I'm not sure that uh, Pound yeah I don't know about Pound and Melville I mean Pound was certainly no, no, a Mel- champion Melville, of Joyce Pound and Joyce yeah yeah well, Pound was certainly a champion yeah, of Joyce, Joyce yeah, yeah he was a big cheerleader of Joyce alright so let's talk thematically now right I like this chapter oh yeah it's yeah. a lot of fun I mean um, Maybe because I got it. It's <laughs> fun, but also, you know, I've, I've, 
how melancholy it yeah. is too. I mean, yeah. this this is a chapter I think even more than Lotus Eaters, where you really learn so much about Bloom's past in yeah. Plant. Mm-hmm. Like Molly is just ever present. Yeah. Everything is about Molly, and you know, there, some some moments are just so heartbreaking. Like when he he thinks of uh, the quack doctor putting up the. Uh, uh, the the adver- advertisements for curing the clap. Yeah, you know, when he thinks about oh, boiling, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's look. He, they're not having sex anymore, so it's not as though that guy's going to infect my wife and I'm going to get the clap. Like, it's probably genuine concern. Like, yeah, he's upset that Boylan is and Molly are going to have their interview, but at the same time, it's he's worried about Molly. There's a violation right? he, there, man. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. find out why they're not making love. Uh, he says he basically says after Rudy. Yeah. Yeah. After Rudy, he was not interested. Yep. Yeah. And I, when I read that, I was like, oh, man, that was what I was asking yeah. about earlier on. And, it, of course, that makes sense, you know, like you would keep trying to work things out. That's di- that seems yeah. different. And, and you, you do get a lot of Rudy here in Glancing. Like when uh, right before he sees Mrs. Breen, mm-hmm. which is a perfect blast from the past, right, because mm-hmm. it's clear that they had or you will learn that they had a dalliance or they were Molly and she were rivals early in Bloom's life. He's thinking of that was the night that dot 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 right. presumably when Rudy was conceived. Mm. All right, and so then I was wondering Green about that. walks in because I thought we already got a scene of Rudy being conceived when she looks mm-hmm. at the dog. The dog. Okay. So I think those are in conflict. No, why because so? It's ten years. It, I thought they it's, were. It's, it would have been um, Rudy would be almost eleven now, or would be eleven now. And yeah. I think he's looking back like ten, no, eleven. The years. timeline works. I just wonder it. it I don't know. I didn't get the sense that those two ideas meshed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but maybe, I, yeah, I don't know. I There's just, no, it's I not certain. That's, that's my take on it. Yeah. I don't know that that's certain. Right. I, I mean, I, it could also just be a kind of general fleeting sense mm-hmm. of nostalgia, that ellipsis at the end. Yeah. You know? I don't know. Um, wow, so much. Uh, so the... Um, when I remember this chapter, I only I always remember those paragraphs about the kind of uh, the grotesque scheming of the men yeah. and the the kind of um, all that imagery of food and and all that. But uh, reading Elman after I read this chapter, he points out that like this is as much about disgust and vomiting in different ways as it is about uh, nutrition and yeah. kind of the joys it's, of eating. And it's it's so right. It's, it's so stuff right. moving out of all yeah. and sometimes stuff moving out the wrong way. I mean the you know, most people think the whole joke with the UP up is <laughs> yeah. the you know the the crisscrossing of urine and ejaculation. Like yeah. you've got an erection but you're peeing. Now there's nothing in UP up that definitely says that, but yeah. that's how most people take <laughs> right. it. That's certainly how Elman takes it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and Bloom also, when he's thinking of something that seems to imply an erection, also ends his thought with UP up. You know, and then of course we've already been prodded for that or prompted for that with the you know constant reference to boiling, who's getting it up? Right. What was that term you brought up before? Uh, uh, parastasis. Parastasis. Uh, peristalsis. Peristalsis. Yeah, Isn't the, that have to do with food moving through the, the system? Yeah, yeah it yeah. is the, I wrote it down, the automatic <laughs> muscular movement consisting of wave-like contractions in successive circles by which nutritive matter is propelled along the alimentary canal. And how does this come up in the chapter? Just from, a, like, is it specifically mentioned? Well, all right. Well, I don't about, think it's very convincing. No, no, dude. I, what yeah, about the passages know. like this, you know, where you have... Right, wait uh, a second, hold on. I, I think... I think, <laughs> it, I think Shut it's, down. I think it's brought up, right? And I think there's there's parts of the text that mirror aspects of peristalsis, but I don't think the chapter 
as a whole works like that. That's kind of what I want. Stylistically. Right? No, no, I, I agree with you, you there. What I'm saying? Yeah, I'm, I don't think that I don't think I the you. novel is the alimentary right. canal, and this is like one of the things that has to be passed through like a piece of nutrition. Not that's that I want to rewrite shit. Joyce, but wouldn't right. that be interesting? You want to sure. you want to rewrite Joyce? Sure, but I don't think that's the, I don't think that was his scope because that's just one aspect of the body. Yeah. Right. Right. Sure. Whereas you do have, I mean, if that is the what is it the t- the technique of this as Gilbert lays out right? You do have the idea of trams going in, trams going yeah. out. You have that passage where it's it's very clear. You know, one person born, another one dies, and it's like you know, history is the digestive system. Cannibalism is the ultimate theme. The Lestragonians were cannibals, yeah, right? Right. So history is cannibalism. You know, one born, one dies. You know, what becomes? You know, monuments become rubble. The, Basically, the, the lamb, excrement of ru- you know, ruins are the excrement of history. So the Lamb of Christ. You know, there's right, right from the very beginning. Right you have that religious idea of you know, God demands blood and whatnot. I, I thought the Lester. Jonians, Gonians were uh, giants. They were giants. They but were they, giants. Yeah, they, okay. but they but ate they were men. Also they ate people. And, and, and we haven't even talked about the. the Are they like bird-like? No, no. What no, they're just like, like giant monsters. What? I like birds. Oh, you. But we haven't even talked about the the luring, like the deception, right? Because how does uh, how are Odysseus's men lured? They're lured the, by the beautiful the daughter, daughter yeah, the of daughter. King Antiphates. Don't they sweep down? Right, but first they, they're lured into the bay by the daughter, and then once they're in, yeah. that's when they swoop down. Not by flying down. They I just, thought they were, I don't they know. Harpoon, they're, I, I they're big. They were Homer. giant. I, I, I was reading, reading Homer, I and, stopped. And weren't, I, I think at the busy. end, weren't they throwing, like, huge rocks into the ocean yeah, as they were sailing away? And his boat's on the periphery. Yeah, because yeah, he knew so enough to stay out. He knew right. enough to stay out, that's so right. So think of all the, oh, sorry, Tom, go ahead. Well, okay, so if we're going to go with what's the connection to this text, is Miss Breen, uh, is she, is she the woman? I don't think she lures him. I think hunger is supposed to be a lure. And think of all the deception that is in there. Code comes up all the time, right? The idea that, uh, you know, like when he thinks of James Stevens, I think it's James Stevens, the founder of the Irish Republican the Brotherhood, right. Yeah. right? The idea yeah. of, oh, circles and cells. So you only know like one other person in your cell. There's all these kinds of ideas of deception. The Masons, right? And all of their their kind of secrecy. And then the woman that was hiding. And, you know, he talks about like, um, you know, that would make a great code, you know, leaving classifieds in the newspaper. I took that as all ideas of like luring, deception and whatnot. That's supposed to be kind of the lure. And then of course, hunger, hunger itself. He's talking to Mrs. Breen, but he can't focus on what she's saying because he starts smelling the smells and he's lured away. True. But when he starts describing her, how is he describing her? She's kind of a food. Well, and she's also a bit of a mess or her, the situation surrounding her is a mess. And what's up with the husband? So I kind of viewed her as maybe, uh, you know, he, he avoided being cannibalized by her. She eats up the <laughs> husband. I, that was my misogynistic read of that, that she she sort of stood in for the, the, the woman in the giant world who was supposed to lure in. But he, like Odysseus, is able to to get away from that. Yeah. Whereas her husband, Dennis, is whatever he just I don't even understand what, what what's going on with the with the husband. <laughs> he's like some sort of zombie guy. Yeah, he's, he's he's a paranoid. And someone's messing with him by sending him a postcard that said. Now, hey, I had a question about this. So, when Bloom gets the postcard, he just reads "up," but it's always quoted as "up up." Yeah. So, but because Bloom just says "up." Is the postcard just say U dot P? And he thinks Or does it say U P and then she explains, you know, 
up. Oh. Because the joke only seems to make sense if it is UP yeah. up. Right. Right? So I don't know. I mean, Dude, I, I, that's like splitting hairs in this text. I'm not even yeah. there yet. No, no, but that's going to be important because the joke keeps running through the rest of the text. And yeah, but so does the bar of soap. I'm, I, that's that's <laughs> tangible for me. Yeah, dude. No, I, I assumed it says UP, UP colon, colon up. Oh, okay, because yeah, it would make, wouldn't make sense for her to say UP and then punctuate it with a colon and then up. Okay. Can, can I go back a second to what you were talking about with regards to luring? What about, like, intimacy? Like, is that a kind of lure for him? Like, there's this one passage where... Bloom's talking about food and, and, and all of a sudden it turns into a real intimate moment and the two of them, you know, there's a kind of satiable... Well, well, to play off what Tom was saying, I think there's a couple of these things, right? He talks about uh, the Martha letter, right? And, you know, talks about, hey, maybe I should go for this. That seems like a lore in a way. I, I'm thinking Dilly and uh, Simon Daedalus, that connection, right? There, there's a lot of women that seem to be kind of dangling for his attention in some way. You know, I mean, I don't think they're all functioning the same way. You know, yeah. it's the same. But, but you know, this conversation has brought out a couple other experiences that I think kind of fall into that. I, this is kind of half-baked. I haven't really thought it through. But I think there's something to that. No, no. I, I was thinking, like, if Joyce gets kind of a bad rap for not treating women well... I feel like this chapter redeems him, and in, 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 at least in my mind, in some ways. I don't know. If that's the case. I don't know if this is the one. I <laughs> no, want here, here, here's the thing. It does so. I feel like it does so because because Bloom Bloom as a kind of masculine figure, his own masculinity is in serious jeopardy in this chapter, and he kind of like lets that be. I don't know. And then there's some intimate moments I feel like that that exist in his own mind. Well, he, he you know when when it comes up the woman was pregnant or in labor for three days, he's sympathetic towards that. Yeah. He's sympathetic towards uh, um, uh, Daedalus's uh, yeah. daughter. So, I mean, and the, the, and the blind person at the end. <laughs> he's sympathetic to the seagulls. Wants to be. He's a sympathetic guy, he, right? Oh, yeah, it's only it's almost like here's what I was thinking. If Bloom can't really be, if if Bloom can't have his masculinity kind of. You know, if he can't be in touch with it, mm-hmm. so what happens? He gets in touch with like a stronger feminine principle inside of him. Mm-hmm. And what happens to him? That brings him into great nostalgic moments, sensitive moments, moments where he wants to help people, like mm-hmm. the blind guy at the end of the chapter. I don't know. I, I thought this chapter was really like touching in so yeah, many you, ways. You do learn a lot about Bloom. And I, I think the, I forgot about the, you know, just overwhelming. You know, nostalgia, just those punctuated sentences of like happy, happier than. Mm. And then when like when he really gets gloomy, you know, that no one is anything like like we've had some dark thoughts, like even in as early as Calypso, you know, with the Dead Sea, when the cloud went past. But I think even more than just calling the Dead Sea the sunken cunt of the world, like when (laughs) when he just one sentence, you know, no one is anything. Yeah. Now, I, I, you know, but it's different from Steven. You know, yeah, no, but right. I think he's really when he feeling, says it, you feel when it. When Bloom what, says it, it's it's it means yeah, overwhelming. Being the rhetorical, over, right? Because yeah. the overwhelming feeling with Bloom is as positivity and progress. He's yeah. always looking for ways to make the world better, yes. and his mind is always working in positive ways. Yep. And then it's it's undercut by these these very dark feelings that are there as well. Even even in Hades, he refrains from the darkness, right? He in some ways, like I don't remember him really kind of getting on board with this kind of it's a kind of difficult chapter with everything that goes on yeah he kind of distances himself right it doesn't seem it. like death itself no. is really like they're they all want to sentimentalize death and make it very mockish for him he has a very um 
you know, just kind of a distance view of it. Like, look, it's just when the parts stop. Working. Right. I'm, I'm not going to let that suck yeah. the life out of me. But when it comes to existential things, you know, beyond just merely death, but like just the idea of like finding happiness and contentment and whatnot, like that's what he thinks of history in the grand scale. You know, it seems to me much more moving than Stephen's take on history as a nightmare from which I want to. Oh, what tr- I'm going to say, what triggers it then in this chapter? I think he's constantly thinking of Boylan. But he was thinking of Boylan. I think, I, 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 I think, I think what's specific about this four hour o'clock day. It's, it's, four o'clock is coming. It's, it's coming, it's, yeah. And there's something else. It's all the, consu- all the, all the food as consuming, all the men, the hyper-masculinity that is in this chapter. Uh-huh. Bloom doesn't seem to jive with that. No. They're all consuming food. What does he do? He sits with wine, not beer, right? He's drinking wine and he's... He's relishing in in what he's eating. He's so removed from all of that masculinity. We, but we knew that before coming yeah. into this yeah, we chapter. Did. He's he's a Spartan He doesn't gourmandize on on whatever. He yeah. doesn't. You know, these guys are depicted as if someone stuck a trough underneath yeah. them and they're just going at it. But we knew that going into yeah. it, just the way he talked and rhapsodized uh, about food and and the process of making food. So there's something in here. Maybe it's him being hungry, mm. perhaps that puts him in that vulnerable. And then when he is watching the guys sort of eat in a frenzy, maybe that takes him a, a, another step. And he I also, he, I'm sorry, Josh, he can't go home, right? And okay. and when he's wandering, what is he doing? He's seeing all this. It's almost like he's kind of in this limbo state. Where yeah. Okay, so it's a that's, that's state. what I was going to say. Right. So right now, like Lotus Eaters, he doesn't have much to do. He's got time to kill. You would think that would be the most dangerous chapter where these thoughts are going to come and haunt him. But it's the Lotus Eaters chapter. He does everything he can to forget it, and he's successful. This chapter, though, we're closer to 4 o'clock, and he's got nothing to do other than to kill time, get lunch. He goes to a pub. He's got to go to the library just to trace an ad, but that's it. He's not working right now. He was working in Elis, and I think it... All he's left is with his thoughts. We get more. We are more in Bloom's head than we were in any other chapter I in this. It is all Bloom thinking constantly, and he's getting. To, he's doing a good job. He's getting out of those kind of gloomy thoughts, and then something triggers it. Getting out of those gloomy thoughts, but Molly is always there right from the very beginning. Whenever he thinks back to the past, it's always about she, blah 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 blah, or Molly tasting that butter, or Molly this, Molly that, and he can't think of Molly. Really, without thinking of Boylan, and then of course you got Nosy Flynn bringing up Boylan. Like any time <laughs> someone sees him, right? Like whether it's Mrs. Breen or Nosy Flynn, it's always how you doing? How's the wife doing? She doing much singing? Like it's always like everyone wants to know about. And the then wife. Boylan shows up himself. Yeah, then you get Boylan at the very. We're end. gonna meet this guy. Well, we've seen him a couple times. Yeah. Uh, right. He ducks him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. What about what is that line where you said no one is is anything? What yeah, that's that? that's after. So it's it's the. Let this, me preface this by saying that Les Dragonians actually has some of my favorite continuous prose passages yeah. in Ulysses. Basically. Some of those and, paragraphs are amazing. And and this yeah. is remember we were talking about we we're trying to figure out Lotus Eaters like where's that passage that supposedly Joyce talked about spending a day or yeah. days composed. It's Les Dragonians. I've got the very pat like the quote. You know, it wasn't it. that last passage because I remember it, it could there could be something else on that, but there is a passage in Lestragonians that Joyce apparently brooded about saying, you know, I spent yeah. you know a whole day just on two sentences. There's a passage in here where when he's sitting and and relishing in his in his eating experience, where he goes back to like the dawn of man, like when men were hunter gatherers, and then he moves into like the agricultural revolution and he considers food. Over yeah. like you know, hundred like a couple thousand years or thousands of years, it is fascinating. And then he ends up at the end of it with like, 
I would be a good waiter. You know, oh, like right. you know, I would I would look at the the pretty girls, you know, and I would I would say, how are you, and, and what would you like to eat tonight? Do bedad, and she did bedad. Yeah, and the bedad reminded me of of uh, Simon Daedalus in uh, Portrait because he seems to say, you know, bedad, and then on the heels of all that, you get that huge intimate uh, memory of him with Molly yeah. and, and, and they're feeding the cakes to each other man those two pages That's I was great. like pouring over yeah. them I, my heart was like getting ripped into shreds that that passage you know not to spoil anything but that passage is very important the passage between the two flies you know yeah, it's, right. yeah, it's perfectly exactly. bracketed by and you would think with the way time passes in Ulysses it probably is an instant flies on the pain yeah. flash of insight Flies on the pain, yeah. but he thinks back to that moment when they're in, you know, Houth Head, Houth Head, Houth Head, you know, Northern Dublin Bay, you know, having that incredibly intimate experience, yeah, where she's actually, you know, basically taking, you know, pulp from her mouth like some sort of muffin or like seed cake and <laughs> spitting it into his mouth, which sounds beautiful in the way it's described and here. bird-like, right? <laughs> bird-like, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I really bird. thought I thought birds were involved here, man. I'm still, I'm still hanging with that. The seagulls, back to bird uh, Yeah. So, you know, but uh, yeah. that's that's Molly's. That's how the novel ends. With you, Molly thinking of that same moment. You've got a guy that ten years of his life and, and, and a difficult marriage, and we're following him on one day in which she's going to meet with a lover. You know, this seems like a, a novel about a, a total existential crisis, right? Yeah. We kind of like talked about that, and yeah. that seems like that seems cutting edge for 1922. Yeah, and, or yeah, no. Well, sure. I, I mean, anything that goes this deep into the human psyche, I think, is cutting edge for that time. Yeah. And dude, you're looking for like her- we were looking for heroism, you know, back in Calypso. Yeah. He, he, he conquers it. You know, he he yeah. comes home. What did, what did know, Tom it, say? He's like the the nouveau man, or no? The, the, I forget what I said. The modern <laughs> uh, Uber man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He he's still this is this is anguish for him, but he's able to. He makes his way through the day. He, Go here's, ahead, Joe. Here's a passage. Ravage over her I lay, full lips. Here's a page. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, 176. Um, Ravage over her I lay, full lips, full open, kissed her mouth, yum. Softly she gave me my mouth, the seed cake warm and chewed, mawkish pulp, her mouth, and mumbled sweet and sour with spittle. Joy. I ate it. Joy. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah dude. man. So you're... you're your you know, praise of like Bird Girl, your praise of you know sure. uh, you know Stephen's poem, like this is where it's at. All, this, all the uh, trite stuff that you hate. Yeah, I don't hate, <laughs> but I just I'm not as moved by this. Yeah. I'm moved by. Yeah, this is this, this is, is incredible, incredible right? Yeah, this yeah, yeah. this is where like if people ask me like what you know you say James Joyce is uh, you know a, a, you know an artist that has moved you doing incredible things with prose. It's passages like this. Yeah. Well. It, well, the fragmented mind, you mm-hmm. know, the fragmented, tormented mind. That's something that I'm that, he, that I'm I'm get picking up very much from this book that was not maybe taught to me in Dubliners, and perhaps you know he starts to get into it with portrait, but here he's taking it to a next level with this narrative, this fragmented, you know, shifting narrative in and out of consciousness. This text demonstrates internal conflict it doesn't yes. present it right? yes right and, and that's the thing right you see somebody of two minds in one space as a kind of first rule yes. you know and and you have to contend with that and 
that's the genius. I in know. chapter three of Portrait, he presents the, the the problem for Stephen. Here, you're experiencing it with Bloom right. for a long period of time. Yeah, I think the like the way into reading this novel. I was talking with Tom about this the other day. You know, when he's helping the blind guy yeah. across the street, and when Bloom thinks queer idea of Dublin, he must have tapping his way around by the stones. That's that's us. That's the reader. Like we we don't oh, get right. We don't get it. We're not. It's not presented. Dublin looks like this, and Mister Bloom. We don't even know what Mister Bloom looks like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have to get it because he we're almost described. like people feeling around in the dark. And each time we learn, oh, people seem to have a hard time hearing him. Maybe he has a soft voice, or Bloom is surprised that the young man knows he's a man. Does that mean that Bloom's voice is higher than others? Like little things like that, we, no, get. we don't even hear and, his voice. And then we, yeah. we, yeah, we don't hear his voice. We have to. Nobody describes his voice, and then we put it together. Like, yeah, we don't know that Bloom is. I don't. We, you know, it's Bloom is not. You know, Mister Bloom looked like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Dublin looks like this. We're on you know, Westmoreland Street. I don't know anything about that. Like you have to feel it out well, where we are. Yeah, we would only know it if it struck Bloom in the moment. Yeah. And then he's going to spit something out. Yep. You talked about going to Dublin on, in June. Yeah. Would it have helped with this podcast? I can never do it because <laughs> of the school schedule, man. <laughs> now, now I'm getting into I know. it. Now, I now I'm digging the idea. Let's go, man. Take the last couple days of school off. All right. Um, so you just want to poke around uh, sure. that was page? a pretty no good one uh, oh, the, no, the no one is uh, Dave's asking about where is the no one is anything that's on page 164 okay. it, it, I mean if you don't mind just kind of jumping around I got some no, questions yeah. on this of course, of course. Can, right. can we start with the beginning though yeah, 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 I, yeah. I really struggle with the first paragraph I mean I, it sets up you know the, uh, the, the theme of food and mm-hmm. you know but I'm not sure why it's connected to the king the god Savar and all of this, I'm not sure what it's doing, kind of what the bigger picture is for all that, because it seems to fall out from the text, you know, in a way that it, I don't think it did from Aeolus, right? Aeolus had opened up with uh, majestic imagery as well, but I think that was more purposeful because of, you know, the plot of the characters. It was common to have stores that were supposedly, you know, the limited to His Majesty of Kings, almost like sponsored by royalty. <laughs> and the sense I get is that this confectioner yeah. is one of those. Bloom is standing in front of a candy shop. There's pineapple rock on display, right, right. lemon plaid on display, butterscotch. The girl herself who's actually serving the scoopfuls is described <laughs> as sugar sticky. Like everyone can be eaten in this. I love this. Yeah. I and then, you know, you know, Bloom's thinking, ah, some school treat, bad for their tummies, right? And then probably reads the fact that it is Lodzinge and comfort manufacturer to his majesty. I, I assume he's reading it and then starts thinking, you know, God save us. Yeah. I, I love his wandering mind. That's something that I'm getting more in tune with as I know Bloom longer. You know, his ability for his mind to just find something interesting and wander off with it. I, I, yeah. I get a kick out of it. And then I love the you know, little details like heart-to-heart talks, like when he's got the throwaway placed in his hand from the <laughs> YMC. You know, blue? Me? No. Blood of the land. Like, you know, you yeah. see it, like, it's the process of reading. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. Um, so it's really not about, you know, royalty the way it was in Aeolus. It's really just about ad reading because yeah. there's a lot of it's ad It's all about reading. ads, yeah. Yeah. So why is that? Why is... Why does ad reading 
make such a splash in Lester Gonians. What's well, his only job today, right now, is to go get Key's ad. So it becomes the practical to the plot because it doesn't really go with the kind of Homeric but it, uh, analogies what, and such. Why do you mean it's only making a splash here? Like, I, oh no, the it's not. Thing is all, it's not. I mean, it's in uh, Aeolus as yeah, well. It's in every, yeah, but he's, I, he's been I doing think, this all along. I think he, he it's very it hits it pretty hard here, and I think that might be just be a function of being out on the street. Well, that's how Bloom and a function of Bloom. Yeah. This is what Bloom does. He yeah. notices these things. I think the average dude walking down the uh, the Liffey who sees the the rowboat or the boat floating in the river with the ad for the pants right. is probably going to just walk right past it. Bloom sees it and thinks, "What a great idea!" You know that that, that guy has to pay any rent for that water. Yeah, but your average guy walking around town is like Farrington. You know, I mean, that's not. Oh yeah, problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't see this kind of. Um, I think interest in ads and things in, say, Hades, right? That was all blocked out. But because he's not really walking around with that... Lotus Eaters. Lotus Eaters. We got plum trees. Yeah, I, I got no, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm, like, when he's out on the street, I think it makes sense. I, yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, and... But and, he's had it before. That's all I'm trying right, to say. Yeah, and, and Josh like, said it before, right? You know, he's trying to occupy his mind because yeah. he's in a state of distress. He's uncomfortable with really having no place to go. Right? He has this vague notion he has to go to the library, but... There's no real yeah. immediate reason he has to get there soon, or you know. I like that he gets a double reason, right? <laughs> like he's got to go to get the ad, but then he thinks, "Wait a minute, do statues have he the idea of horses? Do they have assholes?" <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. By the way, remember the fact that he says, "No one will see me." The <laughs> right. wrong person sees him <laughs> in, in the next chapter. Yeah. Right? That's so good. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> This is funny stuff, man. I think uh, funny and sad, funny and very well, sad. Like the yeah. the idea, like like I like how he picked you know just out of nowhere thinks of uh, when he's he's looking at the ad, he's thinking of evangelism, and then thinks of the absurd idea of like a glow in the dark or electric cross that yeah. you plug in, like a cross that lights up, and then immediately thinks of iron nails ran in, which was remember his mistaken yeah that's what Molly told him that the I N R I stands for. We learned that in Lotus Eaters. But he says it right after because what do you have to do if you're going to hang up one of these, you know, electric crosses? You are going to have to nail it up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, so we we kind of establish him in space and time, and then we get to the uh, the Daedalus daughter, right? Um, so, I think that is a rather sad scene. The, the big question I had, right? I, I think they're they're paired rather closely. The idea that we see. Dilly half starved, right? Which hits the um, hunger theme and all of that. And with her father, you know, in there pawning something or, you know, what is, it's kind of like a pawning, right? Yeah. Putting something up for auction. And, um, you know, he's fairly certain that mo- money isn't going to go to her for food and all of this. But then he actually feeds the birds, mm-hmm. right? Did it cross your mind that, why did he feed <laughs> Dilly? Yeah. I understand that's probably not socially accepted and probably an affront, you know, to to Simon, who he seems to admire quite a bit, right? He, at the end of this, he actually mentions another, like, that Simon said this great thing, you know? Um, but I think Joyce must have put that in knowingly, you know, this idea that he can only do so much in terms of feeding people, in terms of, you know, kind of providing, um, you know, what they need, right? And, and really, isn't that kind of speaking to his problem with Molly. Can he give her what she needs and, and all that anxiety? Hmm, I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I, yeah, I, don't, know. I don't think there's much he can do for Simon. 
know what I mean? Socially, yeah. right? Like, yeah, I I know, right? It, it's just a a question of the the problems of social convention, mm. right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the two guys in the bar later, uh, Nosy Flynn and who's Burns? it? Was? Davey Byrne. Um, or Patty Leonard and uh, no, it's it's, it's Byrne. Uh, when they when Bloom leaves and they actually yeah. talk about him quite nicely, mm-hmm. they they say like you know oh he's a great guy he'll even give you a, a dollar mm-hmm. and then there's some weird thing where he's like but they'll never and he makes a signature. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, I don't know what that is. So sign like sign well, a big loan. Elman's take on that is it alludes both to the fact he's a Mason and the fact that he's a Jew, under the suspicion that neither Masons nor Masons and their secrecy. Jews, again, this is stereotyping, but the idea that Jews don't want to ever have anything in stone swearing an oath. Okay. And so I, that's at least how it's interpreted, it that there's some sort of anti-Semitism slash Masonic. But it doesn't really speak to his generosity. I mean, my point is that, you know, they believe that he is ultimately generous, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. I get the sense that it's like, yeah, he's a good man, but you know he's a Jew. Yeah. Like, that's, that's right. how I that's, Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. By the way, Davy Byrne, real guy, real bar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. When when Dubliners was being published, remember the big thing with Dubliners was that uh, you know people really are named. That was the biggest controversy. Oh, yeah. that real people <laughs> yeah, are named. Yeah, yeah. Also, I like the detail that hey. when you read counterparts, Nosy Flynn's in Davy Burns in his normal corner. Like it's, there's a quote that says like, and Nosy Flynn was in it. Remember when Farrington sneaks out for the drink? Yeah, he goes into Davy Burns. Is that stated? And who's in there? Yeah. Oh, and it who's is. in there? Nosy Flynn is in there in his normal <laughs> corner or whatnot. And sure enough, here we are. How many years later? Nosy yeah. Flynn's still there. I just Joyce fucking with us, you know. Nosy Flynn doesn't uh, doesn't come off so well. Yeah, I do. Like I, you just have a. You bone to pick with him because it's not stripping out of his nose. I don't have a bone to pick <laughs> with him. I think I think there's like um, a little reversal here that's interesting. Yeah. You know, most of the time we see Bloom leave a room and people shit on him. This time, Bloom's shitting yeah. on Nosy yeah. Flynn, and when he leaves the room, he has nothing but great things to say about yeah. him. It's an interesting, uh, you know, yeah. change of pace. Yeah, you, I and I, you and I were talking about that oh, a couple days ago about how yeah. you know Bloom Bloom is. You know, a very complete characterization. We we do see him warts and all, even in the fact that he has this supercilious quality. Like McCoy, like he's he's dismissive of McCoy. He's dismissive of uh, Bantam Lions, and you know maybe for good reason. Maybe these he just you know these are people that have not been, uh, I don't know, in his corner. But it really does strike a chord when it's this guy who seems totally harmless, very friendly, and very friendly when he's gone. Yeah. But what subject did he bring up right off the bat? He's bringing up the wife, so I think no matter what he... That that gets under your skin a little bit, whether or not he was intentional or not. And then he brings up Blaze's boy, like, oh, that's right, Blaze's boy. And he sings his praises as, like, a boxing manager, like, oh, that guy's a hairy chap, which I know supposedly means clever, but I just picture this big, hairy guy. Oh, The the chapter's filled with this kind of hyper-masculine feel. Well, no, I I really think that that's going to get ratcheted up until 4 o'clock. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, all of like he can't even distract himself with what time it is because time even reminds him. Like you know, you, your go-to as just kind of wandering around town is what time is it? You know, at least I can uh, kind of gauge where I am. But yeah. but that just leads to what he sees is like this this torture. Yeah, you know. And then even curiously, Dave, I think you've already mentioned this. His hunger 
seems to seduce him. So that's nice on that yeah. Homeric parallel. Yeah. But then, of course, that's you're thinking of Triss. So I th- like the part that uh, supposedly was uh, so carefully composed over the course of a single day is on page 168, and it begins at, towards the very bottom. A warm human mm. plumpness settled down mm. on his brain. Right. His brain yielded, and here's the sentence. Perfume of embraces, all him assailed. With hungered flesh, obscurely, he mutely craved to adore. Mm-hmm. That's the famous passage, starting with perfume of embraces to crave to adore. That did not stand yeah, out to yeah, me. I think there I are better say. passages. I marked it off, but I think there are better places. But then what I, I, I so going on, though, with the seduction, Duke Street, here we are, must eat, the burden, <laughs> feel better then. Yeah. He turned Cambridge's corner, still pursued, jingling hoof thuds, perfume bodies, warm, full, all kissed, yielded, in deep summer fields, tangled, pressed grass, in trickling hallways of tenements, along sofas, creaking beds. Jack, love, darling, <laughs> kiss me, Reggie, my boy, love. It's curious that when he finally gives in to the temptation, it's rendered like a, you know, a, a, a you know, blue novel or something, and then he walks in, and and then the, just the shock of opening right. that door and men, seeing, men, you know, men, men, men. men. Like, this is one of my favorite passages in Ulysses. Yeah. You're just horrified. Yeah. Yeah, seeing them. Yeah, he. See, I mean, as much as I, I like the argument before that you know, women are seduction, men are vile, right? You, you know, there is there is that inverse being played with completely, and it's not and just boom stuck in the middle of that in yeah, some ways, right? Yeah. Well, I, I know. I think it's Elman makes uh, a huge point of like Bloom is always trying to get the middle road, right? That. There's vegetarians he doesn't yeah. relate to. There's meat he doesn't relate to. So he eats cheese. You know? The seduction he gives into is food. So this is yeah. his benign yeah. thing that he embraces. And and it's interesting because when we first meet him, he's got a bit of a kind of, you know, like we sense he's a carnivore. We sense that he likes to eat, but not to the extent yeah. of, of these people. Right. The first word yeah. that comes up in that chapter is Bloom like to relish. Yeah, in, Mr. In, uh, Bloom, yeah, with the like kidneys and like, all the internal organs. And, yeah, yeah, but he liked to relish in it. And then yeah. you get that scene of him like sitting with his wine and enjoying right. everybody. Like, I, this is a guy of refinement. I what like offense is the speed and, and sloppiness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not thinking about it. Right. You know, he even says at one point, he says, uh, it, it t- wine tastes better when you're not thirsty. Mm-hmm. Right, like you know, the idea that you can th- actually consider it when you're not just consuming it. But he embraces the fragrances of the world, and he also embraces the the, the sights of the world, and and that's maybe part of his obsession with with the besides the fact that it's career his career, but the ads are something visual to it. So yeah. almost anything, I think he he lives purposefully, yeah, and he yes. lives thoughtfully yes. the entire whether it is food and just food is highlighted because it's going to come up in three you know, three times a day and it's, and, and it's going to be right there and, you, and there's a process of sitting down. But everywhere, you know, the, the fact that the odors keep coming up, like yeah. he, he lives so, life in, in thinking about yeah. it. Speaking of odors, how about this? Mr. Bloom <laughs> ate his strips of sandwich, fresh, clean bread with relish of disgust. <laughs> I had to read that several times yeah, when I first ever read. Relish of disgust. Why? Well, pungent mustard, mustard the feety savor <laughs> of green yeah. cheese. And if you all, you know, people that know me know that I can't stand cheese. <laughs> this is one of those passages that just confirms everything that I believe about cheese. So but he eats that. It. Wait a he minute. Eats it. He loves he it. It's feety. It smells is like feet. Is that why you love this book? Oh, <laughs> man. Now, ultimately, Bloom, Bloom likes that, right? He likes, I think, the, yeah. he oh, likes yeah. the ambiguity of living and dead, right? Cheese bowl. Relish of disgust. Yeah, yes. that, ca- that captures it. Yeah. 
Um, so, so moving back a little bit, um, I, it it strikes me that, and I wasn't really thinking about this when I was reading before that Bloom doesn't know he's hungry until a certain point, right? Am I getting that? Like, um, you know that feel like you're a little cranky, you know what's going on? Oh, I'm hungry. Like, that's the thing. And so I really like, you know, early on, it's like the second page of this, where rats show back up, and he thinks about the rats in the vat, rats, vats, you know, that whole thing. And it's the same imagery as Hades, but the morose sadness that he was feeling over Patty Dignam, right, was about... You know the rats devouring the body and mm-hmm. this kind of despicable, like morose imagery. Now he's hungry, and the rats are you know in beer, you know, like a like luxury, still corrupting in all of this. But it's, I mean, I think that's it's just amazing the idea that he can take the same image and based on his kind of physical attributes, yeah. you know, his mind's going to change. But also, I don't think he knows he's hungry right. yet. It's all this imagery, kind of like, like flooding in on him that he can't control yet. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the that's one of the, the joys of this this passage or the whole chapter is that food is everywhere whether he realizes it or not, but he doesn't become conscious of it until he is it when he's with Mrs. Breen and he smells the smells and then starts thinking, Oh, I'm hungry. Like does that where it becomes what, yeah, conscious? There is a I, point. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. He, he does he, he does it. at one point say, you know, should yeah. I go to Burton's? I can get a cheaper lunch there. But right. I, can't, I think that might be after he, the smells he, of the On page one fifty eight he talks about being hungry. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a little less than halfway there, but um, but, but it's prepared. Like he's think his whole you know narrative or thoughts are colored by food, and that's a relief in another way because it gives him purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And now I oh I good I can go sit somewhere I can eat I can stop wandering around. I, I think that's like, also why that strange passage that's very beautiful and intimate with uh, the memory of Molly and, and Bloom as she's feeding him those, those seed cakes. Yeah, you know this idea that somehow food. And and love and, and that physical, you know, love making that that all gets wrapped up together, and, and you know, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Joyce, that those two things. Are- Joyce was apparently interested in the origin of fermented drink and how you know, you think of rituals of like you know women that would you know in like South Pacific cultures who would you know chew things then spit it into the communal pot or whatnot, and then the men would drink it and the process would actually ferment it. I know and nothing about this. So you know it's you know, according to at least <laughs> yeah. Frank Budgeon, you know Joyce had that in mind. You know Bloom drinking wine and then of course thinking of this memory. That's, I, that's I, pretty wild. That's I do want to. I do want to go back to that passage, and I just have a quick question. What the rats? No, not the rats. Oh. The passage that Dave brought up. The passage of where they're. <sighs> Making love uh, the seed cake. in the park, yeah. So, you know, Bloom, it begins, it's so perfectly structured, you know, stuck on a pane, two flies buzzed, stuck, yeah. right? So that's bracket number one. Then Bloom suddenly is, is, I think the wine is starting to glow on him, right? You know, glowing wine, as it says, glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the wine press, grapes of burgundy, sun's heat it is, seems to, t- seems to a secret touch telling me memory, touched his sense moistened, remembered, and then it comes, the memory, like the flash, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, after that, it's really quite intense, you know, hot, I tongued her at the very end, she kissed me, I was kissed, all yielding, she tossed my hair, kissed, she kissed me, me, and me now. Now, that's, you know, that's a direct contrast between where he is now, yeah. wandering the streets, waiting for them to have their dalliance, and that idea of me and me now, that, that's come up before where he says, you know, happier, happier then. But then remember, I can't remember what pages, I think it's 168, 
where he says, you know, or was that I? Remember, I was happier then. Or was that I? Or am I now I? You know, he's, he's, he's playing with this idea of, like, is he the same man that he was? Right. When, and, and we know from the Molly chapter that that was when he proposed to her. That was when he asked her to marry him. Yeah. And he's wondering, like, am I even that same man? Right. He's like, just great. I'm reading me. Yeah. And me now. And me now, me now, right? Yeah. So sad. Yeah. And then remember when he says, the saddest thing I keep bringing up when he says, you know, nobody is anybody, right? It's like we're all just identityless. We're all just the, the refuse and shit of history, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the question is, <laughs> am, I, am I me now? The novel ends. No. Right? I always do Yes, but... The idea, you know, I think that's the confirmation, yeah. right? Like, it's tragic when you read it here. Yeah. Right? It's so sad. I, I, the reason why I want to bring this up now is I'm afraid I'm going to forget Lestragonians when we're talking about Penelope, but I just want to be on I, record I don't think you will. that reading these two passages, <laughs> this is the affirmation that Bloom is looking for, and though yeah. he's asleep by the end of Penelope, yeah. Yeah. that's we get that affirmation that no, you 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 are the you, yes, I embrace you, yes, I embrace you for what you are, yes, I embrace everything, you know, you are you know when you say nobody is anybody, that is not true. How to love when people change? That's got to be. I mean, that's something I feel like Joyce is touching on throughout the text. You know, that's got to be something so many people struggle with. Um, that that yeah. to me is is you know hits home. It it, it, t- it pulls the strings. Although I don't get the I see the funny thing is I don't get the sense that Molly has changed. She she seems like she's fully formed when he gets her right. Like you yeah. get the sense that this is this is just who she always has been. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. She's kind of blustery and yeah. wild. Yeah. We got a ta- yeah, we, we got a taste know. of it. Well, we got a taste of it in know, the yeah. Cersei chapter. Right? No, I'm just just from Clips. from I'm sorry, um, Clips, yeah. other people's like reminiscences of her and things like that. Yeah. I, I, I want to meet Estragonians while we read the I know. I, Well, I like You're this. Right. Is one of my favorite chapters, so yeah. I'll definitely. I think I'll remember. It. All right. Yeah. All right. There you this go. This one improves. We get seagulls, right? The swooping seagulls. Um, I, I don't know what to make of that. I do think there's connections to Stephen in a couple places here, and the seagulls might be one of them. Oh, there's there's several. That, yeah. that what I was just talking about. The whole idea of him contemplating is he the same man? Yeah, it's looking ahead. But in the next chapter, Stephen does just that in his theory of Hamlet. Right. Where he makes the argument, as mm-hmm. we've already seen in Telemachus, that Hamlet is both, Shakespeare rather, is both Hamlet and the ghost of Hamlet, you know, mm-hmm. King Hamlet and whatnot, mm-hmm. and Hamnet, the son, who's actually, and so on and so forth. Yeah. You'll see. Well, I mean, but, once, you know, he sees the goals, he composes a little poem. What page you Right? And then he thinks, uh, 152, uh, that is how poets write, this, the similar sounds. But then Shakespeare has no rhymes, blank verse. The flow of the languages, the thoughts, solemn, right? I mean, that's a very similar thought to what to Stephen had. Page 138, Nihilus. This yeah. is what Stephen is thinking about, you know, the, the dancing girls mm-hmm. in uh, Dante's rhyme scheme, right? And he's thinking of the same thing. And I, I, love, the, uh, I love that he quotes Shakespeare. The hell yeah. is inescapable. And I love that he gets it just slightly wrong, like he almost has it, right? You know, Hamlet, I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain, he says, time, but it should be term, to walk the earth, but it's really night. But he's got it, like he's got yeah. it in his head. Yeah. I am thy father's spirit, you know? It's like the one line that's filled with so much drama, you know? It's not even, like, perhaps the best of Hamlet, right? But Bird's poetry and father and son relationships yeah. all conflate into this, you know, little space for him, all speaks... 
Stephen. Your chat, your question before about this chapter, is it about, you know, looking for something different or what's it doing? I feel like what, it, what it's doing is deepening our characterization of Bloom. I feel more tied to Bloom as of this chapter than I ever have so far in this book. All right, so I'll buy that. Since Lotus Eaters. I'll buy know, that. He, he kind of disappears a little bit. Why do we need it here? I think there might be a good answer for that. I'm not being snarky or Yeah, yeah. Like, what is it? I mean, because, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, there are very kind of basic things that are laid out here. We know it's June 16th from this chapter, yeah. right? I don't think we knew that before, right? He says, oh, the 16th today, at one point, another point, he thinks about Molly's birthday, and he starts June, July, August, mm-hmm. yeah. right? I don't think we've heard... We you find that. out a lot of answers. You find out why they don't make love in right. this chapter. Yeah. You find out what day it is. Um, yeah, it's a lot of... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... But I, you're saying, why here, why now? And I yeah. think it's as simple as Joyce has decided to construct a day. It is lunchtime, and people are free during lunchtime. Bloom is going to his lunch. What's the man going to do when he's going to his lunch? He's going to be thinking, right? And I don't know if you buy the idea that this particular time is the gloomiest time of the day. Bloom does. So Bloom why says, is that? I, 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 was I, I, I don't that. know that I... I know Joyce felt strongly that the afternoon actually is the time of the greatest heightened mental activity, well, hence skill and Charybdis. I don't yeah. know that I buy that either. I don't right? either, yeah. So <laughs> I... I, I if, if you do, though, buy the idea, if, as Bloom says, this is a gloomy time, it's natural for him to have those gloomy thoughts, though his brain is always working. I just like the idea that it's, it's lunchtime. Bloom has some time to kill. He's got one mission now, and he can't go home, right? Mm-hmm. right? So he's got to decide on... He just left the press office. I, I take it that this is happening right after he talked to Crawford, and Crawford said, you know, he can kiss my royal Irish <laughs> ass, and he's going this way where the others are going off to drink, and he's got time to kill. So you're suggesting that um, it, it, he really doesn't think it's the gloomiest time of the day. It just... That's his excuse for how he feels right now. It could be the hunger talking that Maybe. he's not um, aware of. Maybe. You know, the context that, of the day because of what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Be. And you get a few chapters where we deviate from Bloom, right? Other things kind of go on. Bloom becomes a kind of periphery character in some ways. And then we come back to him like I like we were with Lotus Eaters, complicating his character. I, I think that that's important for me. It's important for me to buy into him if I'm going to, you know, feel... In touch with. So you're saying that Lester Gronius needs to reestablish him as a presence. Big time. In a way after Aeolus. It definitely that does. Could be. Oh, no, it, it definitely, definitely does. does that. Yeah. yeah. Curiously, uh, Joyce is recorded as receiving letters from fans after this one came out, after Lester Gonians, yeah. saying, look, enough with Bloom. We're tired of Bloom. We want more Steven. And he he says, you know what? I'm actually tired really? of Steven. Steven is fully formed, whereas Bloom is still growing. So are we. And we see, we see Bloom growing. <laughs> but then, curiously, Skill and Charybdis, Bloom is just a shadow. He barely yeah. shows up. Oh, you tell me he sold out? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Shit. But it is funny that after this, you know, because Joe, you were basically saying, like, why this? This seems like kind of like more of the same. Yeah. You know, other people were feeling that when he was publishing in the, you know, in a serial fashion. Could you imagine living in a world in which you have like, you know, this kind of incredible art coming out in inch pieces and you're literally writing to these artists, you know, we need more. We want more of this. I feel like we're just, <laughs> you know, saturated with so much. This stuff doesn't happen the way it did for Twain or Melville or whatever. You don't send fan letters to Kanye? I I do, but then Joe calls me creepy. Yeah, you're creepy. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. What else we have here? The, the heli thing was interesting to me. Um, I, I like all the. So please tell me it's later than page one fifty two. It's one fifty four. So, <laughs> am I supposed to believe that that's a real like advertising like like You've never seen that in sandwich boards? Yeah, but, but real thing. five of them working in tandem together? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, but is there anything? Food check. It's like a food truck. Is, is, there, uh, is there, did anyone else, like, as soon as you see Scarlet Letter, you, we were talking about Melville, like, is, yeah. is he, like, aware of Hawthorne? And was, is there something to the fact of, like, you know, shame and whatnot? I mean, the guys are walking around, I don't know, like, you know, he, he's, because he makes the point of saying they're Scarlet Letters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? I don't know. Like, is that just a. Uh, I'm always fascinated like, with how much Europe knows of American writers as of, let's say, the 1850s. Yeah. Because I couldn't imagine how literature is getting back over there. Oh, no, I think it's so. I mean, you have you have American publishers like Gertrude Stein over there. like uh, But she she's in the 20s, though, she right? 1920s. Yeah, I mean, we're close. No, I'm talking about, you know, in the 1850s, you know. I guess I guess. No, what I'm saying, by the time Joyce is there, you know, there's, there's been a lot of movement. Henry James has been around. Gotcha. You know? like, like, there's a... They have to be eating up Emerson and Melville yeah, sure. at this point. They oh, have yeah. to be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's... We saw direct references to... I mean, to I would argue women. that... I would argue that as much as we champion Joyce here for being, you know... Um, you know, new edge avant-garde. I would argue, you know, Melville's doing that seven years earlier in yeah. some ways. You know, I mean, Melville's special though. He is special. That's but not the trend. I mean, it's not no. about it's not about comparing, but um, it, I, I feel like they have to be consuming that. You you get my point though. That, that's a I think that's a strange thing. If I saw four dudes walking down the street, how much you got to pay these dudes? These guys are like, uh, I think these are these are the same guys that are probably in Ivy Day with nothing to do, right? And you just, just say, "Look, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy you at the end of the evening. I'll buy you a few pints, right?" Like, it kills me. And, and then, then uh, the apostrophe S is lagging. Yeah, that's Dude, great. We that's great. we pay people to dress up in cow costumes and hold signs yeah, at roadways. One, but yeah, then, one. But then, <laughs> Joe, compare this though to his ad. Right? What did he want to do? When he worked for Wisdom Healy's, yeah. you know, he wanted to have some, you know, smart looking girls, as he said. <laughs> right. You know, that would be carried around on a float People like they're girls. writing something, right? <laughs> That's great. By the way, another lure. Advertising is another lure, mm-hmm. right? Lures people to, mm-hmm. you know, to their, I guess, to their purchase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, also in that same paragraph, the, uh, the boiling, like, you know, yeah. trying to crowd out his mind is, is more frequent, as we said before. But I love how he does it here. There are not boy, no, McGlade's men, yeah. right? I, I love that, that stopping even the word yeah. from, like, showing up in your brain. Right? Yeah. There's such kind of, like, tension and, and angst in that. It's, uh, yeah, do you realize in this, past, in, in this chapter we have presumably the not introduction, but the, the beginning of the affair with mm-hmm. Molly, yeah. right? With them singing that song together when Bloom is right there with them, right? Where Molly and Boylan are arm in arm. And again, back to the code motif of luring and whatnot, you know, the finger touch, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that coded messaging, like mm-hmm. he touched her, you know, like it's, it's definitely much more or much less distinct than he touched her finger. She said, yes. But that is ultimately what's happening. Yeah. So you basically, if the story of the beginning of the affair and the ultimate end in this very chapter. That, that moment you just talked about where he almost can't say Boylan, that's where I feel like Joyce is doing something that, you know, we're not going to see in Melville, we're not going to see in Conrad, that internal psychology. struggle. The inner, yeah, psychology. the inner psychology. Yeah. That's captured here in ways, and I remember Josh mentioned it when we were talking about portrait, and he was saying... 
you know, at the end of part five. That was the narrative for him, or the, the journal writings, yeah. that most captured kind of, you know, that realness for him. And that's what we've been getting with Bloom. Well, on the heels of that, right, we're going to get a bunch of supposed lovers, right? Penrose and Professor Goodwin, right? They're all named later in... Right, but we don't know that now. Right, this. but what that demonstrates to me now is that Bloom, like, like it's the tension of the mind. It's that real psychology yeah. that he can stop the word boiling, yeah. boil from from coming to full fruition, but he can't stop the flood of thoughts right. that are associated with that. And because he can't stop the sun from moving across the sky, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because it is revealed later that he assumes that virtually every male character <laughs> in this novel has slept with Molly. He catalogs them. <laughs> so, yeah, but the fact that's not brought up here. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that it's it's this kind of subconscious like when he thinks of, strain. Yeah, when he thinks of Goodwin, he thinks of him as kind of this uh, old, uh, you know, addled guy. Yeah, a little creepy. Remember we had that weird thing with the mirror on his hat introduced in Calypso as though maybe, I mean, oh, God, was he looking <laughs> He's down? Looking He's looking up girls' Well, if it's on his up. hat, though, what's he <laughs> I don't looking know. down their shirts? I don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> Dave yeah. has one of those. Yeah. You know, how, about, how about on page 156 when he says, how many has she? I'm, oh, trying, yeah. I'm trying to move us forward here. <laughs> Turn the page, yeah. So, oh, yeah. How, how many has she, right? I mean, he, this is something constantly on his mind. Yeah, but he, like, it's something that comes to his mind and then he thwarts. It yeah. pops up and he thwarts, right? We're, Joyce is as interested as how the, the brain works as what those thoughts are. I, I'm amazed at how tender he still can speak of Molly, even though he's got so much of this angst surrounding her. Yeah. You know? He he's thinks, still very tender with her. He thinks of her birthday twice in this chapter yeah. and her birthday's three months away. I know. Yeah. yeah. He thinks about I, buying her something yeah. too later on. Yeah. I, I, I really her. love Bloom. I love him as a, He loves you her. Know, this chapter. And yeah. you know what? I, I don't... You know, it's weird. Is he... He seems to be more upset about the context of what it means to, for her to have an affair than the actual affair itself. You know, yes. the consequences. Um, he wants he wants her to be happy, which for her I think means sexual intercourse. Well, he, then oh, no, go ahead. Well, he's not fulfilling his duties as a, a man. Right. It's his masculinity that's questioned here, and I think he's aware of that, and yet. From this chapter, we kind of realize he was the one who pulled away. He was the one who said he couldn't do it after Rudy died. So yeah, not, It's not clear. I don't think that's as clear, Dave. I, I, I think it's, you know, find that passage and that could... He I says, think, on page 168, he goes, I was happier then, or was that I? Or am I not? Or am I now I? You mentioned yeah. this before. 28 I was. She, 23, when we left Lombard Street West, something changed. Could never like it again after Rudy. But the last personal pronoun was she. Yeah. So I think it's ambiguous. Because I read that she was 23 when we left. Something changed. Could never like it again. That could, to me, is she could never like it again. Uh, all right. But yeah, I think it's I, ambiguous. It, I think it's, it's left here. enough. Okay, it, all right. It could be either. All right, so then let's just say Rudy causes both of them a, a sort of rift. What, then it's his, it's his ability to serve as the man and, and fulfilling her physical needs as well as her emotional needs. He's serious. He's got the intimacy. So we get a sense. I mean, what's the first thing he does? He goes out and gets breakfast. And granted, he's making food, but he, he gets it pre- prepared for her too. Oh, yeah. You know? He's subservient. That's why I think I was confused on that chapter. I didn't, I didn't sense that rift was going to be between them, and it is here. I think this chapter draws so much focus on this idea that his masculinity is thrown into the, to the, 
the, the focal point here. Yeah. You've got all these men around him, consuming and consuming. And, and what does he do? He sips his fine wine, you know, his grapes from Burgundy. You know, he's somehow in between. He's in limbo inside he's to, himself he's as much as... hold it together. Yes. As he's in limbo inside himself as much as he's in limbo physically not being able to go home, you know? Yeah. Hmm. All right. Then we move on to uh, Mrs. Uh, Prufoy. Is that what... Uh Proof for you, right? And uh, I, I love that chapter about birth imagery and all of this. And, um, you know, I'm just stealing from Elman here. But those are, you know, Elman made all these points about you know, the idea of vomiting and moving things out of the body. And, uh, you know, um, he actually says something grotesque like... Um, Boylan vomiting into Molly, uh, Miss Poofoy vomiting out like the children in Afterbirth or something. Jesus. I was like, yo, Elman, you're out of control. It's almost like the critics have to like raise their game because Joyce is so, <laughs> you know, it's fun, challenging. But uh, my point is that you know I love the play on the motif. You know what I mean? That it's 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 going to be about bodies and what goes in and out of them. You know that he has this kind of broad view of it and can kind of play those those games with the theme. It's also going to be important because that's going to be what's going to bring Stephen and him together. Well, a a kind of birth. Yeah. Yeah, right? The birth of that new relationship or, I mean, and, you know, I I guess it's questionable like what's going to actually happen to them and where it's going to be successful but these markers, I mean, I think ultimately point to optimism, you know, happy endings I don't know, maybe it's too but you're not getting those signposts here. You're just the the seeds are planted, but I think ultimately this is. I think the overwhelming mood is is melancholy in this chapter. Yeah, you know, despite yeah. Bloom's attempts to you know talk about like he, he gets he escapes from the Lestragonians in in Burton's cafe and immediately thinks of a communal kitchen and how like p- food could be provided to anyone. Even John Howard Parnell can come as an example. Queen Victoria could come as an example. But then he realizes, oh, but everyone's going to be fighting over food anyway. Like he, he comes up with these great ideas. He comes up with great ideas to make childbirth great. Like yeah. why can't everyone have that twilight sleep? That'd be great. But then kind of flags on it like, oh, people are too focused on the stupid silvery effulgence of the, you know, the, he's back to Dan Dawson's speech, right? Yeah. And then he gives up on the idea of words, right? He thinks of rhetoric and then he says, oh, it's all just useless words. And he keeps the, the, the pot, like his, his positivity keeps getting thwarted in this chapter, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the only way he can distract himself is finally have that moment of quiet in Davy Burns' pub. But it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because he got Nosy Flynn, who should be an amiable character, yeah. asking him the exact wrong question, you know, how's your wife? Mm-hmm. And how's her singing engagement? Yeah. You get a sense that Bloom's an outcast, right? And more so as the novel deepens. Yeah, because even the nice things that are said about him are basically, yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. You know, he's, he's sane. He's a safe guy. There's a distance you know? to it. But yeah, it's, it's though, but yeah, but when the fun gets cooking, you know, out with the watch and he's gone, like you always get the sense like Odysseus yeah. that he is always escaping from things. He's, he's able to have like one foot in, he's a liminal character, right? He's got one foot in, one foot out. He's not like Dubliners, right? He's not like most of the people there. We talked about this earlier in the text that he's kind of living among them but he's also not part of them 
Curiously, yeah, though, outside. curiously, there are a lot of names that he mentions that he could stop in and see, but we never meet those characters. He you do get the people. sense that he, he he did have friends, right? He's yeah. always referring to Citron. <laughs> well, I don't know about Simon. Yeah. He's referring to Citron. He's referring to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Moisel and and Ariansky, I think, is another name that keep coming up, but we don't meet them. We don't know if he still sees them. Yeah. But it's, it's not like there were people that he was close to, but, you know, the Bloomsday, June 16th, 1904, there seems like there's, you're right, I don't think there's anyone. And so that's why that meeting with Stephen is going to be so... Yeah. And know, even for poignant. this chapter, uh, that scene with the, the blind guy, where, you know, he can extend some of that, that what he has to give to people and humanity. Mm, kindness. You know, kindness, ideas, you know, I could help. You know, he finally is able to do that, and someone can't really judge him because he really doesn't know who he is. You know, yeah. There, there is a long stretch in this chapter, like the end of the first half, say, where he just seems aimless and it's yeah. uncomfortable. You know, where you know you're three and four pages in, and the brain's still working, and you're like, what is he doing? Where's the plot going? It, yeah. it kind of like it created anxiety. You know, I'm, I'm just speaking me, the unpleasant example, like kind that. of uh, the unpleasant uh, kind of quality of this text. Yeah. Um, I don't. I think everything up until the this the sun, you know, coming up and him being pleasant again after, you know, but not even to when the cloud comes. I think there's about three or four pages like leading up to that where it just seems pointless because it's his thoughts. It, yeah, I think he's no. walking. He's yeah. walking, and these are the things that are going through. It's I, a little I, it's too a, long for comfort. The, I, on purpose, yeah. I'm not saying that's a right. bad thing. There are two moments in this that I think are some of the most revealing passages in Ulysses. One. He feeds the seagulls. Yeah. And then several, like for me, I'm a slow reader, especially reading something like this. So I'm reading, 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 reading. And he says, five minutes ago, I fed the seagulls. Like, five <laughs> fucking minutes. I had the same thing. You know, and so it, it, like if you listen to the audio version, it's, it's, like it's 40 30 me. minutes. But if you think about it, like uh, thoughts fly by. I mean, look, this, this is tremendous artifice to, to say that these yeah. are his thoughts. Like my thoughts are not <laughs> written out like sentences. But you realize, holy shit, like this, like time really is like what seems like a really long time. Really, you can have these flashes. I think that's what's going on with the whole flies stuck to the yeah, pain. Yeah, flies sure. stuck. I think it's like flies stuck to the pla- flies stuck to the pain. That happened moved. like that, right? Yeah. And then that was one. Yeah, and all the, of that in between is is a split second. That's your point. Right? And the other is and, that. And, and I'm sorry, Josh. Can I go real quick? All that within a split second. He goes through so much history of time. He goes back. He talks about when people were domesticating animals. Then he talks about the rise of aristocracies. He talks about the rise of bourgeois and industrial, you know, nations. He literally takes us through all of, you know, civilized humanity in that one really long paragraph that lasts a page and a half. And then it ends with the waiter. He want yeah, I'd be a good waiter, and then he starts interacting with people in his mind, and then the flies are on the wall. I was like, oh shit, man, that's incredible. That's great. It's great. So, oh, no, I interrupted. Yeah. Number two, if I could. Yeah. Uh, Bloom disappears, but of course his thoughts don't stop. So Bloom's out of the scene. We got Patty Leonard, Tom Rochford, and in Davy Burns. In Davy Burns, right? right? And they're talking. They're doing their thing. They're talking, and they're talking about like, what's the tip you got on the horse? And of course, Bloom walks in at that exact moment, raises his fingers, three yeah. fingers in goodbye. Flynn says so long. 
And Bantam Lion says, that's the guy that gave me the tip. We should talk about this now. Do you remember when Bloom said, mm-hmm. I was just going to throw away the paper? Yeah. One of the horses that's running that day is called Throwaway. Mm. Bantam Lion said, Throwaway? Ah, okay, I might put something on that. He thinks that Bloom's got some hidden knowledge, maybe because he's a Mason. And pair that with and, him revealing that he's a Mason. Right, right? so yes. they, Bantam Lions just think he got a tip when Bloom was literally saying, I was just going to throw the paper <laughs> away. Well, this is going to come back because Throwaway wins the race. So everyone for the rest of the novel assumes Bloom just made a shitload of money. Why isn't he standing drinks? Right. And Bloom has no idea that this is even going on. That's but funny. anyway, my point is he leaves, right? And then we're back in Bloom's mind. But we have no idea what he was thinking for the past several minutes, and we're plunged in, literally in Medius race, where he's thinking about x-rays, and there must be something green going down. Like, it's like the novel didn't stop when Bloom left, and his thoughts are still going on. I love that. I and all that's that, yeah. fascinating. That's so good. Yeah. Because you, you can only speculate, right? Because it's been going ever yeah. since. I know, it's really good. <laughs> Um, I, I love how Josh keeps pushing us toward the end of the chapter, and you keep bringing us back. I'm reeling back <laughs> in. You know what that is? That's peristalsis. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what that's about. That's not, that's not peristalsis. And Open it we're up. all hungry. <laughs> we're all hungry. So, um, uh, George Russell, I wanted to just hit that real quick. I think that's one of those other kind of dangling uh, bait things, yeah. right? With a, with a who's that pretty girl, what's yeah. going on here, right? Uh, another lure for him... Um, away from saving his hunger, you know, towards, I don't know. Bloom as diviner. I mean, I know this is not exactly what you're saying, but you know when Bloom, Bloom has an interest in astronomy, right? Mm -hmm. And we find out in the second to last chapter that he actually has Robert Ball's History of the Heavens in his library, which he references when he thinks of, again, I love how Bloom's thoughts go. I'm getting, like, going off on tangent. But I love how he thinks of the the ball dropping to show that it's 1 o'clock. And it's never stated, but then he starts thinking of parallax. Why is he thinking of parallax? Ball. Robert Ball. (laughs) History of the heavens starts thinking of astronomy. We're not told that, but that's how you know that's how our thought processes yeah, work, right? And then uh, before you leave that, no, parallax is important. Yeah, too. I mean, I, it's going to show up later, but I mean, right? It, it's the idea that your your eyes, how your eyes are situated, create kind of uh, perspectives. Well, that right? also uh, that reminds me of uh, when. Ishmael is considering yeah. the two eyes on either side of the whale right. of the sperm whale mm-hmm. and, and they can do they process two different images at one time because they're looking exactly. in two different ways yeah we have a kind of version of that you know yeah. our eyes are very close but that still exists right so you know it very much becomes a commentary on perspective ultimately in a book about perspective right yeah yeah very much so so the idea that you know depending on where you're seated you're going to view something moving in a different way right, right? Yeah. I, I mean you know we catch, we catch the tail end of uh, AE's you know conversation about yeah. two-headed octopus or all yeah. of that I mean there, there's parastasis parastasis yeah wait uh, parallax or no, I know. peristalsis <laughs> parallax I know I, I heard myself <laughs> mixing them up there's parallax everywhere right you know the whole book is essentially you know snippets here and there and what you can make of it and it's putting everything in the subjective realm. And the metempsychosis, I feel like, keeps coming up a sure. lot, too. You know, I think they're related. Of, yeah, they're definitely related. I feel like it's... Remember you talked about Stephen would kind of play with an idea, and then he'd revise it over the course of the text. I feel like Joyce is doing it here as well. Metempsychosis comes up, 
And then, you know, now we're dealing with things like peristalsis. This idea that, you know, this kind of doubling, cycling, things kind of taking a kind of duality to them. Even Bloom composing poetry, right? Like his first version, the hungry famished gull flaps over the waters dull. You know, 10 pages, 12 pages later becomes the dreamy cloudy gull waves (laughs) over the waters dull. Now, is that good poetry? No. Yeah, it's not good. But that's supposed (laughs) to not be good poetry. I'll, I'll concede that. Yeah, absolutely. Bloom's not some pale vampire in that bullshit. Bloom's not some <laughs> isolating uh, artiste. Yeah, for for the next couple pages, I mean, I, I think the text funk. I'm trying to move along for you, buddy. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing. At, I'm laughing at his his reference of the vampire. The um, for the next couple of pages, I feel like the text functions very similar to how Hades functions, right? In terms of we take the theme and we apply it to this idea and the theme. This idea, we get vegetarianism, we get cannibalism, right? You know, and you kind of move down the line and get all great poetry. Don't get me wrong, all interesting ideas. But um, I, I mean, you know, I, I really like this chapter. It's a joy to read. Much better read than Hades, I think, just in terms of interesting. You know, Images and ideas and all that, but a little samey for me. You know, I mean, I don't know. This is the second time in the book that I feel like, you know, maybe ten pages less would have been uh, a better experience. There's like Josh smirks. There's a series of like five pages that I don't have anything marked off <laughs> from like 157. Me or, too. You know, 158 to and, like and 164. Not, any one of those ideas is brilliant in its sure. own. You know, in its own way. It's just that it's it just all seems too much. This chapter takes yeah. me back to Lotus Eaters. I, I, I feel like I know Bloom like the way I knew him in Lotus Eaters. Uh, I don't know for what that's worth. Yeah, um, no, I, I agree with you. I think, I think so. this is because I it's again, so. what is what do they have in common? Bloom walking. Yeah. Bloom looking at stuff. Spending Bloom time. Bloom thinking. Wasting time. Bloom yeah. trying not to think of, you know, the the tryst that's about to happen. Yeah. But I'm with Joe, I think there's a there's a point we get past the exhaustion of getting inside of his internal monologue. Whereas in Lotus Eaters, I, I, I think it was uh, decorated with such florid language and imagery that we had some sort of a payoff by the time we get to him floating in the tub or, or mm-hmm. him thinking about it. So yeah, for, for me also, I think I got a little exhausted oh, yeah. by this. It could have been 10 pages, maybe shorter. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I don't know. Which would have made the podcast shorter. <laughs> That's impossible. We're skipping something. But the, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a little oppressive. And I get that, again, there's... That's part of it. We're supposed to be yeah, oppressed. Yeah. Because blue, the anxiety. I, I mean, think about it. All the, the verbiage that you're saying, yeah, this is kind of a tough go to get through. I think it's all meant to be diversionary tactics to sure. avoid thinking about I'm not what any bad. one of us would be thinking about in the same situation. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's not purposeful. I'm saying the effect is, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you know. Another long paragraph on this aspect of feeding, this aspect of feeding. Again, all brilliant in their own right. You know, pull any one of them out and it's a delight to read. It's just oppressive if I'm sitting down to read Lestragonians. You know, that reader has a right to be fatigued. That's right. <laughs> no, fuck but, you, but you said this. Fuck but you yeah. said this last week. Joyce don't give a shit about what you. Joyce don't give a shit. He don't care and about I you. I respect him for that. I, I do of too. Course. I'm with yeah. you on that. Absolutely. Right. You give a fuck if you're like. You know, it should be shorter. Look, you know, great art comes from a a singular vision of the artist. I, I that's my aesthetic. I respect you know what I Joyce mean? very much for that. Absolutely, anybody that is trying to tailor their their vision to existing principles is already starting off badly. Yeah, right. I mean, 
this novel has stood the test of time because it's it's a big fuck you to the reader, I think. Yeah. Good for him. We talked about this with Dubliners. I, I, I love the idea that an artist leaves his homeland and then can't stop writing about it his whole life. Mm-hmm. There's, you, you get, there, there's nostalgia in that. There's, there's pathos in that. This idea that like, there's unresolved business that he has. I respect that. Yeah. You really think this is a big... See, I, I'm... I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm still stuck with Dave. Or no, sorry, with Joe, rather. A big fuck you to the reader. Like, I just... I don't see that. I think that is so wrong. Maybe that might be I, I really feel like everything that... Like, oh, it's so difficult, blah, 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 blah. Look, I ain't the smartest guy in the room. But I think oh, that there is an answer Wait a minute. The only other people in here are some dogs. <laughs> That's right. Holy shit! You are the smartest. We have a we have a guest. Uh, we have Andy. Just suddenly oh. came like Deus Ex Machina. All right, I'm gonna talk while you go help him out. The, um, uh, I like this podcast. Of course, it's, it's a wonderful podcast. podcast. My point is this, Josh. Um, Wait, so sorry. Start again. I apologize. Joyce's uh, first motivation for writing this book is to please himself. Well, not, okay. not, he's not So any any serious author I agree uh, Why is that different yeah. Than any serious oh, author No 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 yeah. No 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 Not this is Ian James Patterson I agree oh. with you Right yeah. yeah How many serious authors exist Few <laughs> You can ter- Comparatively yeah. speak But a big fuck you To the reader uh, I'm being, he's okay. being hyper Okay 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 But at the same time If you make a formal declaration That this is something That I want to be an enigma For, for generations Or centuries to come That is a little bit yeah. Of a screw yeah. you because I think as a reader, <laughs> you do want writer. you want to have some sort of pleasure pleasure in the immediacy. Now, of course, he's not a genre writer; he's not James Patterson. But at the same time, you're not going to you know in your lifetime, you're not going to figure out you know, unlock all the mysteries of this. So there is a little bit of a screw you to it. Yeah, Stephen King. Yeah, I, don't get it. I, King I take tremendous. I take tremendous joy in Harry Potter. Yeah, I take tremendous joy in in reading a passage or an episode like Proteus. I understand that's difficult. I'm not saying that of it's course. not. But I, I feel like to say that, you know, this is just Joyce being difficult to be difficult. That's I not think what I'm saying at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying Well, to say it's, a, I, look, I know, you, I know you're being hyperbolic when you say it's a big fuck you to the reader. But it does kind of sound like the conversation drifted to, well, this is just difficult for the sake of being no, difficult. No, 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 no. I'm saying that makes it great. Okay. I, I'm not talking about the actual product. I'm talking about the impulse he, behind it. You're saying that Joyce is not giving audience a reader what he or she wants. He's writing what he wants to write. Yeah. And he's staying true to himself as an artist. And and I'll tell you, that is very important. Once you start giving people what you want, you, you, you it gets you, into cliche right. and you you know, sentimentality. The reader, though, you're talking about a wide swath of people that may want one thing, but there are a lot of readers that do want this. You know what I mean? I'm just mm-hmm. saying, let's be careful about generalizing. I think, sure, he's writing what he wants to write, but mm-hmm. it's not at the expense of the reader because there are now, see you're making my point the Good. The, <laughs> the reason uh, that it works is because he realizes that very fact that there is no reader for this he doesn't care. He's he, creating it. Yes. He's he's very good. Right. I think so. He's creating it, right? But to do that means that you have to deny the readership that you Expectations. Recognize. I yes. agree with you that he's denying expectations or, or changing expectations. That I wholeheartedly... Yeah, that's the only point yeah, I'm trying okay. to make. If you're going to write something that becomes a kind of a revolutionary piece of art, which, what is this, considered the best text of the 20th century by... By many. By many lists, let's say. You know, at some point, you 
have to shun what people are going to think about it. You're going to have to say, I don't care what people want. Right. I'm going to put on this paper what I what I think needs to go down. I think that's what you mean by, but, like, that's you know, the big... As much as that's the case, I, lately, I would say in the last five years, there's been a backlash to Ulysses, probably more than that. Oh, yeah? But, I don't know, I read the uh, Times Book Review every week, and, you know, they always interview an author, and they always ask, like, you know, what book is overrated out there or something... A lot of times, man, people take digs at Ulysses, and not just in that text, but because it's top. What's the reason? Why do they? I mean, besides, the, you're gonna go at the top. They, what is their actual? Criticism? Generally, it has something to do with. Um, it, it, it's pretentious, you know. So it's the, trying to do more. So the accessibility. It's accessibility. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's something else going on. Yeah, I do too. I think. I think that's supposed to read to me as, I read this thing, and, yeah. but. I can see through it. Yes. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the the actual pretension is a person that says such it's a thing ego. and trying to. Yeah. What they're actually saying is, "I'm better than Joyce. Joyce is kind of a sham." Um, I think it's all bullshit. I don't um, know if it's saying that, but it's saying he tried too hard. Something perhaps. like that. I would, yeah. I would say that. I mean, there. I, I mean, I, I reject it. I think you know. You're, that's ridiculous. I, objectively, this is an amazing piece of literature. There's always going to be people, right? I mean, we were talking about who was taking digs at Throw recently in, in mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, Pond was it, in New York. Was in Pond Scum. Oh, yeah, right, that, if, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, of course it's going to happen, but I think smart readers will see that that becomes the ego of the person who's just kind of, you know, critiquing or, or, or trying to make his or her own way as an artist, right? How do you do that? You have to kind of think that you have a grip on, on the great art that's out there clearly this has to be in the discussion of that yeah, yeah. can we end this just by <laughs> just by Wrap reading and then having a quick discussion of Which the following oh wait you, you meant this, wait wait is this you, meant, you meant end this oh, debate. they haven't even talked about I was end. literally yeah. going to have the so same so can I I, I want to read it in its entirety the because it's, it's one of my favorite passages in the whole book it's very important <laughs> so this is page 183 Mr. Bloom came to Kildare Street. First I must, library. Straw hat and sunlight, tan shoes, turned up trousers. It is, it is. His heart quaked softly. To the right, museum, goddesses. He swerved to the right. Is it? Almost certain, won't look. Wine in my face. Why did I, too heavy? Yes it is, the walk, not see, not see, get on. Making for the museum gate with long windy strides, he lifted his eyes, handsome building. Sir Thomas Dean designed. Not following me? Didn't see me, perhaps. Light in his eyes. The flutter of his breath came forth in short sighs. Quick. Cold statues. Quiet there. Safe in a minute. No. Didn't see me. After two. Just at the gate. My heart. His beating eyes looked steadfastly at cream curves of stone. Sir Thomas Dean was the Greek architecture. Looking for something I... His hasty hand went quick into a pocket. Took out. Red unfolded. Agendath Natame. Where did I... Busy looking for... He thrust back quickly at Gendath. Afternoon, she said. I'm looking for that. Yes, that. Try all pockets. Hanker. Freeman. Where did I? Ah, oh, yes. Trousers. Purse. Potato. Where did I? <laughs> Hurry. Walk quickly. Moment more. My heart. His hand looking for the where did I put found in his hip pocket soap lotion. Have to call tepid paper stuck. Ah, soap there. Yes, gate. Safe. <laughs> That is so fucking good. Like yeah, for the moment, incredible. those fleeting <laughs> seconds where he's pretending not to see Boylan and hoping Boylan doesn't see him. Yep, I'm just looking for that. Okay, here's potato block. <laughs> just the thoughts rushing through his mind. And then, of course, you've got the Homeric analog. If you want it, he escaped. He made it. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's good. So the word safe is very provocative, I think, here, right? I mean, 
what does that mean, safe? I mean, obviously, and, obviously, on a on a you know pedestrian yeah. level, it just means that he's not being viewed by Boylan. Right. But what is the real consequence of that? Right. What? So let's say Boylan does see him. Let's say he even engages him. What? I mean, for yeah, for Bloom, I think it's the unco- being uncomfortable of having to confront the man that is going to cuckold you two hours later. I think for Bloom, it's just the discomfort because he's not going to stop it. But he's it's going, going to be looking that man in the eye and and not be able to because he knows that's he can't all lie. internal. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know. Boylan's going to do this no matter what, yeah. right? Boylan's still going to think of him as a cuckold, as a wimp, as somebody that, you know, is insignificant because he wouldn't do it otherwise, right? So all of that angst is both be, like being put off by Bloom, but being exaggerated at the same time. You know what I mean? It's very complex. And the word safe, I think, captures all that. Safe is like... From death, no, right? From 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 physical harm or something like that. Like that's the connotations of that word. This is this is he's putting like kind of physical turmoil onto his psyche, mm. right? There's a lot of pathos in that, right? You can, see, I, I think that word alone demonstrates it's funny, the it's absolute he, fire in his brain. And yeah. it's funny, it's when he finds his talisman, not the potato, but the soap, <laughs> right. like something about the soap, right? And think the soap was the, the, the theme of the lotus eaters, yeah, he right? So, so it's like the the forgetfulness or whatnot. Oh, yeah. Also the idea yeah, yeah, yeah. of the goddesses, right? The goddesses have protected him. Right. <laughs> He's going to see if the goddesses have eight, you know, assholes, but, curious but there is, there is, you looked, I, I looked the last time. Did I, you? I, I never thought to. I'm going. You I'm going to look it. at the Perseus statue at the Met. I love that. You got to open a magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will kick you, you out. You can't touch it, right? <laughs> you know, how about this idea of the home? The, ho- the modern home is safe, right, from physical harm, physical peril. Mm. And he can't even do that. And it's not. It's not. Is he really safe? He's not safe at all. Right. But I do think it's interesting that safety is connected. Right? He ducks into the library, yeah. right, where Stephen is. The great thinkers of the world. Right? Stephen's going to be in there, or that's going to be a... Co- they're not going to make a connection, but there will be... Right. His presence is there. That safety, as apart from the home, right? There's something going on there, perhaps. But, right? I mean, that word is... The reinventing of what safe is has to occur inside him. It can't be in the physical world because the physical world's not safe in any kind of way for him. It's it's ironic because it's not, like, dreadfully harmful either. No, and he's you very know, there's good. There's great irony, yeah. Right? He negotiates it fairly well. Yeah. Um, but no, you're right. That is, that is, it's, it's all internal. Wow. All right. I guess that's it. That's it? Yeah. What else? You want Dude, more? you spent like an hour on the first four pages and then we skipped over like a whole bunch of good stuff. <laughs> What's he doing? Yeah, let's go back. No, I'm just kidding. I, I like giving you a <laughs> No, we cover a lot of stuff as we want. Well, we know um, we jumped in earlier. We jumped toward, uh, deeper in the chapter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I, I feel, I feel great about this. You feel okay? Yeah, I do. But what's the next chapter? Skill and Charybdis? Skill and Charybdis. Steven? Yeah. I'm going to suggest it is far more innovative than Josh, I think. Um, oh yeah, no, I I agree with you. I mean, I think it's it's a leap forward. Yeah, this, from this is different. This is this Lotus will Eaters. feel different than Lestragonians, yeah. but you know, in in reading again, it 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 so closely ties with Proteus. But let's face it, the last time we spent significant time with yeah. Stephen was Proteus. That jump alone I is like pretty it. is pretty yeah. innovative, I think. Yeah. But all right, we'll see you next week.